Here at Calvary Chapel Northeast, it's our goal to make disciples of Christ by exalting our God, equipping believers, and engaging in our community. Thanks for tuning in to this week's CCNE podcast. Today, Pastor Brendan will be teaching out of the book of Matthew. Okay, well, let's, uh, let's look to the Word of God here this morning again in Matthew chapter 12. As we pick back up here after having had a week break from our study in Matthew, I want to do a little bit of review for us. And so uh, a little bit of a refresher on what's happening and where Jesus is at as we pick things up here in Matthew chapter 12. Remember, he began to make his way to the synagogue where he first healed a man with the withered hand. And now as we pick up in verse 22, he's about to heal a demon possessed man. Now, before we get to that, what we need to recognize here is that from the beginning of the chapter and through the end of the chapter, Jesus is really dealing with here Pharisees. Specifically in the context, he is addressing the Pharisees. But I believe that as we consider this chapter and we consider our own hearts, that Jesus is really dealing with the Pharisaic heart as well. Those, and and really it's all of us in various ways that have a, a bend toward legalism. And so uh, it's what he says to them, it's what Jesus says to them that informs all of us who have those Pharisaic tendencies. What the rest of the chapter, though, is not, what we really don't see in this chapter that I think oftentimes people become confused and focused on the wrong things, some have attempted to make the rest of this chapter really a, a primer on demon possession and exorcism and that it gives us really specific instruction as to how to deal with some of those things. And while certainly there may be some insight that we could glean from this chapter on this as we see Jesus heal a demon-possessed man, as he talks about uh, essentially binding Satan, we could certainly look at that and go, okay, there's there's some insight into this, but to make that what this chapter is about, to really focus in on that would be to miss the point of what Jesus is communicating here, first to the Pharisees as well as to us today. And so we want to be careful that we don't miss Jesus' point in the theme of this chapter. And really that theme is the importance, even the necessity, of a truly transformed life. As Jesus has been dealing with the Pharisees already and will continue to all the way through his death and resurrection, what he's continually challenging them on is it doesn't matter what you look like on the outside. It's what you've allowed the Lord through his spirit to do on the inside to bring necessary transformation to your life. And so that's what we'll consider here this morning. So if you would, just agree with me once more as we jump into his word. Father, we pause again here this morning and thank you for a wonderful time of praise and worship. And now, Lord, as we look to your word, help us, Lord, to rightly consider what you have for us this morning. The necessity, Lord, the importance of a transformed life. And knowing, Lord, that that comes through you, Lord Jesus, through your death, your your resurrection, through belief in you and repentance through the work of your Spirit in our lives. And as we uh, make our way towards communion today as well, Lord, I pray that even now you would ready our hearts, Lord, for that time, that it would be pleasing to you and beneficial to each of us, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now again, picking up here in verse 22, Jesus is still in the synagogue, and it says, Then one was brought to him who was demon-possessed, blind and mute, and he healed him. 
so that the blind and mute man both spoke and saw. And all the multitudes were amazed and said, could this be the son of David? Now Jesus here is not deterred by the Pharisees' protests of healing on the Sabbath. If anything, he is likely more inclined to do so. Not that Jesus is being spiteful here, but the Pharisees aren't getting it. And he's not going to stop healing just because they've said you shouldn't do this on the Sabbath. And as he heals this man, which it's always amazing to me how Matthew just sort of says, here's this demon-possessed, blind, mute man, and he healed him. Just like that, right? And what we need to understand is Matthew isn't necessarily focused here on the process or the miracle itself, but rather the the fact that this is what Jesus is doing. Jesus, who is king, king over all things, has the power to bring healing. And, And so as he does this then, much of the crowd that's gathered around him begins to ask, could this be the Messiah? Is this really him? And now this question, if the Pharisees weren't already mad enough, now these people are saying, could this be the Messiah? You better believe Now the Pharisees are are in an uproar. They've already plotted to kill Jesus, and this is increasing their hatred towards Him. And it says in verse 24, Now when the Pharisees heard it, they said, This fellow does not cast out demons except by Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons. Here they look at Him and they say, He's not working on behalf of God. He's working on behalf of Satan. Now what this is is a classic attempt to discredit and misinform. It's still prevalent in our culture today, right? You don't like someone, you don't like the truth, what do you do? You tell a different story and hope that people believe it. This is, this is not a new thing, this has been there throughout the ages as people spread misinformation in hopes that people begin to believe it. Now in verse 25 it says, But Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation. And every city or house divided against itself will not stand. If Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? Jesus here in verses 25 and 26 communicates a couple of things. First, there is basic wisdom in what he is saying here. In effect, whether a kingdom, a city, or a house, a household, if there is not unity, it's destined for ruin. This is the very principle spoken of by Abraham Lincoln when he quoted these words in his acceptance speech as the Republican nominee for president as he addressed what was then a very divided nation that was on the brink of civil war using this wisdom and speaking to the fact that a nation divided against itself cannot stand as he was attempting to bring unity. Now what Jesus also communicates though here that is rooted in this wisdom is that what the Pharisees were saying was illogical. It didn't make sense. If the logic is true that a divided kingdom will be ruined, then how is it that Satan would be casting out Satan? That doesn't make any sense. But not only is this statement of the Pharisees illogical, it was also hypocritical. As we see in verses 27 and 28, "...and if I cast out demons by Beelzebub..." By whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they shall be your judges. But if I I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. The Pharisees themselves had performed exorcisms and occasionally had endorsed those who sort of made it their uh, profession to do such work. 
So Jesus says, so, so what of them? What of those individuals? And, and of course, they've really got nothing to say. Jesus has a way of silencing his critics. Perhaps he's silenced you before. But here's the thing that really silences them. If Jesus then is, is not of Satan, then to his point, he must be of God. So what then? It's as Jesus has said, the kingdom of God is at hand. What Jesus is communicating to them is the king is here. This is the same logic that plays out today. As people seek to dismiss or discount the evidence of God in their lives, maybe this was you. Maybe you, before you came to Christ, were doing this very thing. Or maybe this is some of you today, or those watching online, wrestling with and seeking to dismiss and discount the ways that God is working in your life. Because to see it as Him, to recognize that this is in fact God working in my life, means that things in your life need to change. So often today, people's struggle to bring themselves under the authority of Scripture is because it comes along with consequences. It comes along with the necessity for a changed life. And now in verse 29 here, Jesus goes on then to reinforce His point. As he says in verse 29, Or how can one enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? And then he will plunder his house. This is really a powerful statement from Jesus and one that people often want to take as instruction for dealing with possession. And certainly you could look at this and say, when we are praying, when we are dealing with spiritual warfare, yes, we need to pray ultimately that the work of the enemy stop. But again, we're missing the point if that's what we focus on here. What Jesus ultimately is saying here is that the kingdom of God has come, more specifically, the king. And he, Jesus, is stronger than Satan. And he is plundering Satan's house. The place of Satan's temporary rule, this world, when Jesus came, when he was here, he was plundering Satan's house. What Jesus is really saying to the Pharisees here is that he's sticking it to Satan. That he's cleaning house. That he's ministering and working, healing and restoring. And again, I don't mean to discount aspects of spiritual insight into uh, spiritual warfare and the demonic realm and those types of things, but so often we see these things and we want to make it about us and we want to make it about what, what we can do in the power of God. And, and while sometimes that may be a wonderful thing, again, in the case of this, we look right over the fact that Jesus is saying, I'm here and I'm stronger than Satan. And that's ultimately who our faith and our hope and our trust should be in is in Jesus, not in our ability to work miracles based off of something that's explained in Scripture. No, it's for us to look and go, it's Jesus, look what you're doing. And you did it then and you can still do it today. And so here though is the implication of this for the Pharisees as well as for you and for me. Based off of what Jesus has been saying to them, he's saying, look, I'm, I'm not working in the power of Satan. That doesn't make any sense. And he says, furthermore, I'm here more powerful than Satan, and I'm cleaning house. I'm dealing with things right now. And he goes on to then say in verse 30, he who is not with me is against me. And he who does not gather with me scatters abroad. What he says here is, you are either for Jesus or against Jesus. Listen, 
And this is what we need to understand clearly today. You do not get to be on neutral ground with Jesus. There is no in-between. You are either for Him or you are against Him. There is none of this, oh, you know, he, yeah, he was a good man. He was a good teacher. Historically, there's evidence for Jesus. And so it's not that I don't believe that Jesus existed. But, you know, I just, I'm just not sure where I'm at with this. What you have to understand is, is there's no middle ground. If you take the, the view that, that Jesus was just a good man, a good teacher, a philosopher, well then listen, that's wrong. If that's your view of Jesus, then you ought to run from Him. Because if He was just simply a teacher, if He wasn't really who He said He was and is, then that makes Him crazy and a liar. And more likely than of Satan. That much would be true of what the Pharisees uh, said about Jesus, and Jesus recognizes that. But as He says, for me to be of Satan, dealing with demons and illness and sin in the way that I am, that doesn't make sense, which means then that it must be of God. And you've got a decision to make. They had a decision to make in this moment whether they would recognize Jesus for who He truly was and is. And the same proves true for us. And listen, to be for Jesus doesn't just mean that you think, sure, Jesus exists. Even the demons believe and tremble, Scripture tells us. To be for God means that you give your life to Him. And the fact that we can only be for or against Jesus, that there is no neutral ground, leads to Jesus' next and very profound statement. As He says in verses 31 and 32, Therefore I say to you, Every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven men. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the age to come. What we have here is Jesus' statement on the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, often referred to as the unforgivable sin. These two verses here are possibly some of the most misunderstood verses in Scripture, but there are really two things that Jesus says here that should be considered. Notice the first half of verses 31 as well as verse 32. Every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men. And in 32, anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven. Now, within the context of this idea of an unforgivable sin, these words here from Jesus should be of great encouragement to us. Think of, for example, Peter in the account that we'll read later on in Matthew chapter 26. What do we know about Peter in that time surrounding Jesus' trial and his crucifixion? But that Peter denied Jesus. And he didn't just deny him once, he denied him three times. And, and those three times were not simply, oh, I, I, you, you got your mistake and I don't really know who that is. No, it was, let me be accursed if I know that man. Peter effectively said, you can condemn me to hell if I know that man. Can you imagine the weight upon Peter in that moment when he effectively rejected Christ? Well, why do I bring that up? Well, if there was an unforgivable sin, if there was blasphemy against God, wouldn't that be it? But of course, as we know, Peter repented. God restored Peter and used him in a mighty and powerful way. 
Or how about in uh, 1 Timothy in chapter 1, the Apostle Paul says this of himself in verses 13 and 14. Although I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent man, but I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant with faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. When we come to a passage about an unforgivable sin, it is in our nature, right, to think, oh no, (laughs) have I done that? Have I done that very thing? Many of you have likely asked of the unforgivable sin. I remember in my BC days what, what a blasphemer I was and taking the, taking the Lord's name in vain and, and, and rejecting people and, and you know that, those crazy Christians who would come and give me those gospel tracts and evangelize to me and I'd say, get out of here. I don't want anything to do with you. And, and here now I profess to be a Christian, but, but am I really? Have I committed a sin that cannot be forgiven? Listen, rest assured this morning, if you're asking yourself, oh no, is that, is that me? If there's a concern inside that you've somehow committed an unforgivable sin, you haven't. The Holy Spirit is still at work in your life. You're still responding. There's still conviction. There's still concern there. You still find yourself running to Christ and saying, Lord, if that's me, have mercy on me. That is evidence alone right there that you've not committed this unforgivable sin that Jesus speaks of. Our Lord's grace is exceedingly abundant. We get to look at examples like whether it's in the Old Testament with David, of course, or uh, whether here with Peter or with Paul, and to say, thank God that your grace is exceedingly abundant. And so that should be an encouragement to you this morning, especially those who are struggling to let go of your past, that the fact is it says every sin... And so as you think about your past, as you reflect on the things you've done, as the enemy seeks to bring those things back to you and put you back into bondage, into into a prison of your own making, you can say, no, these sins have been forgiven. But of course the question becomes, how can this be if there is in fact an unforgivable sin? Well, note what it is that Jesus says here. What He says is unforgivable is blaspheming against the Holy Spirit. Jesus uses this word here, this word blaspheme, instead of the more general word sin, because to blaspheme speaks of speaking against or slandering. And as we'll see, this is less about what Jesus is able or not able to forgive, but rather something that you ultimately do to yourself. What do I mean by that? Well, Jesus has said, in effect, do what you want to me and it can be forgiven. Say what you want about me, and it can be forgiven. But blaspheme the Holy Spirit, and it will not be forgiven. Well, what does Scripture tell us elsewhere? But in John chapter 6, and verse 44, Scripture says, No one can come to me, that being Jesus, unless the Father who sent me draws him. Well, who does the Father use to draw men unto repentance? But the Spirit Jesus also speaking of the work of the Holy Spirit in John chapter 16 verse 8 says that he the spirit will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment but what if you have entirely rejected the working of the Holy Spirit in your life what if you have hardened your heart to him how then can you be convicted of your sin and drawn to Christ a lot of people as they read the account of the exodus struggle with the idea that God, as Scripture says, hardened Pharaoh's heart. But the fact is, God did nothing that Pharaoh didn't first do to himself. 
And such is the case with any hardening of hearts that first comes a willful unbelief followed by a hardening of the heart followed then by consistent and ongoing rebellion which is followed by a final denial, a rejection of God and the working of the Spirit. And for some, that's the point of lights out. No more. They are lost. And that is what Jesus is speaking about when He says this sin will not be forgiven because you've gone so far that you have shut yourself off from the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. And if it's the Holy Spirit once again that is used to draw men unto repentance, and it can no longer speak to you, no longer convict you, you have silenced this over and over and over again in your lives, well then for some that's the end. Why does Jesus bring this up? Well, Because the Pharisees were at risk of this very thing as they continued to suggest that the work that was being done was of Satan and not of God. But this also should be an encouragement to us because Jesus does not say to the Pharisees, you have done this, and now this has happened in your life, but rather He's warning them. The same way that He warns you and me before we responded to the Spirit and came to God through Christ the Son. This same work, if you are a believer today, has been, has been carried out in your life. That at some point you came to the place where the conviction of the Holy Spirit finally got a hold of you. And you responded and surrendered your life. Jesus goes on to say in verse 33, either make the tree good and its fruit good, or else make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for a tree is known by its fruit. Jesus effectively says, look at, look at my fruit, look at the evidence. And He says to you and to me today, look. Look at what God is doing. As He goes on then to address the Pharisees in verse 34, He says, brood of vipers, how can you being evil speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. A good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good things, and an evil man out of the evil treasure brings forth evil things. But I say to you that for every idle word men may speak, they will give account of in the day of judgment. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Romans in chapter 10 verses 9 and 10 tells us that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. You know, sometimes we say stupid things, and they are just that. We put our foot in our mouth like Peter did so often. But other times, the things we say really reveal what's in our hearts. Those are the words that matter. Only God knows your heart, but it's for you to evaluate it today. What are your words saying? Is it confession unto salvation? Or is it ultimately rejection unto damnation? You know, when I got saved, I was at the age of 18 and I had spent the better part of my life professing to know Christ and to believe that Jesus was the risen Son of God. And it took me some time, even, even after I got saved, to kind of reflect on my own life and to say, Lord, what... what was I really saved? I mean, you know, at this age, I had, I had prayed this prayer. I had said these things. In fact, you know, as I mentioned, through, through junior high and through high school, I would, I would be quick to tell people that I believed in Jesus. But you know, it wasn't until I was 18 that such words were coupled not just with belief, but with confession, with recognition of my need for a Savior. 
Prior to that point, I had effectively silenced or dismissed God's conviction in my life. The working of the Spirit drawing me to God. Our hearts can be pretty hard, just like these Pharisees. And in verse 38, Matthew tells us, Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered, saying, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. But he answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign. And no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And the men of Nineveh will rise up in the judgment with this generation and condemn it, because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And indeed, a greater than Jonah is here. And the queen of the south, verse 42, will rise up in the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And indeed, a greater than Solomon is here. Yeah, I love how Jesus often replies to some people. The Scripture says God gives grace to the humble, right? He resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. This is one of those examples where He resists the proud here. Not that He doesn't answer them, but He gives them an answer to their question that no doubt they had to kind of go, well, what are you talking about? I just want to see another sign. I want to see another miracle. But of course, Jesus knows, no, you don't. It's not going to make a difference. You've already seen them. And so he answers their question, but in a way where it's going to force them to have to really think. Because here's the thing. Jonah was a rebellious prophet. They had to have been thinking, what, Jonah, we, you're comparing yourself to Jonah here? He's not on our list of like, check out this guy, right? Look to this prophet. But what Jesus is saying as he uh, certainly, and as you see there, compares what's about to happen in his life to what happens with Jonah. But more importantly than that, even as he says, the people of Nineveh, those wicked people, when Jonah preached repentance after his three-night stay in the belly of a fish, they repented. They believed. And, and the queen of the south, a pagan queen who simply heard of the glory of Israel and of King Solomon, when she came and she saw she believed. And he's saying, and, and, and here is one standing before you who is greater than Jonah, who is greater than Solomon, and even when I rise from the dead, you'll still not believe. And so he says, you're not getting a sign. And this goes back then to our hardness of heart and, and our unwillingness to surrender to Christ. It, it reveals our, our motives for the things that we do. Jesus continues on and tells somewhat of a unique story here, but, but it, it has a wonderful picture that as he says in verse 43, when an unclean spirit goes out of a man, he goes through dry places seeking rest and finds none. And then he says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when he comes, he finds it empty, swept and put in order. Then he goes and takes with him seven other spirits more wicked than himself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that man is worse than the first. So shall it also be with this wicked generation. Why does Jesus tell this story? Once again, this is not insight here into exorcism and demon possession. Remember who he's talking to. Consider what Jesus, as we've considered before, especially in the Sermon on the Mount, what Jesus will say to likely some of these very same Pharisees later on in Matthew. In Matthew chapter 23, in verses 25 through 28, Jesus says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you cleanse the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of extortion and self-indulgence. 
blind Pharisee first cleanse the inside of the cup and dish, that the outside of them may be clean also. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which indeed appear beautiful outwardly, but inside are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. Even so, you also outwardly appear righteous to men, but inside you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Why does Jesus tell them this story? Because too many people, and these Pharisees included, are concerned with just trying to clean up their act. To do better. And what that amounts to is simply reformation. A reformed life, not a transformed life. And what then happens is it turns into legalism. And it takes us right back to the beginning when the Pharisees first began to question Jesus and their discussion of the Sabbath and the importance of keeping the Sabbath laws because we think it makes us a good person. Because to do this and to do this and to serve here, or volunteer here, or to do these things, or, or, or wear this shirt, or post this bumper sticker, or do any of these other things, or just these outward signs, and do they match what's happening inside? What we need is a transformed life. And how does that transformation come? But through an intimate relationship with Christ. Look what Jesus says. Verse 46, while he was still talking to the multitudes, behold, his mother and brothers stood outside seeking to speak with him. And then one said to him, look, your mother and your brothers are standing outside seeking to speak with you. So often we see this and we look at this final passage here at the end of chapter 12 and we can easily just kind of consider it an aside. Oh, that's interesting. Matthew likes to write everything down and so he just gives us his narrative and here Jesus is teaching and oh, by the way, his, his mom's out there saying, hey, Jesus, just bringing you your lunch. That's not why it's included. Look how Jesus answers. But he answered, verse 48, and said to the one who told him, who is my mother? Who are my brothers? And he stretched out his hand toward who? His disciples. And he said, here are my mother and my brothers. At this moment, everybody probably gasped and thought, dude, that's cold. That's your mom out there. And Jesus was not seeking to diss his mom in this moment. What he wanted them to understand and he's been sharing with them about the necessity of a transformed life is to say, you think that's my family? I'll tell you who my family is. It's those who follow me. It's those who surrender their lives to me. And yes, there is an implication here that at this particular time, that his family didn't believe. That they were, in fact, outside the faith. As he says in verse 50, For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. And so here's the other wonderful encouragement for you today, Christian. As Jesus says, you're my sibling. I'm your older brother. And that can be really tough for us to wrap our minds around, right? We read something similar in Hebrews that he's not ashamed to call us such because we've allowed him to transform our lives. Because we've allowed him to make us new. It's right here that Jesus says, my family are those who believe in me. To the Pharisees, he says to them, stop trying to clean up the outside when you're empty inside. Stop laboring. Let's think about this now in the full context because it's taken us three Sundays to really consider all of this. If you look there at the end of chapter 11, what do we consider there? Where Jesus says, come to me. Why? 
because you're laboring, because you're heavy laden, because you're burdened with the laws. And so it was very much applicable to them at this time, but it's applicable to us today. As Jesus says, what is it that you're heaping upon yourself that you've convinced yourself you need to do, whether to earn favor with me or anybody else? He says, you're working, you're laboring over and over again. Come to me. Take my yoke upon you. I'll give you rest because I know that you're looking for it. I know that you're tired. I know that you're weary. I know that you're burdened. Come to me and he'll teach you and he'll train you and he'll raise you up and show you the life that can be lived in him. And from there, it's not a coincidence that then as they're going about the Sabbath and they're walking along that Jesus says, what what, what is the Sabbath about? But he declares, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath, which means I'm the Lord of rest. You've heaped up all these other things that, 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 that are, have convinced you that you're righteous. But you've missed the point. You've missed me. I'm right here before you. And he goes on then to heal and to show people that, look, look what I can, look what I can do. And this is an example of, of who I am. And he says, come to me. But he says, but if you keep rejecting me, there's going to come a point where you're beyond the point of no return. And he continues though to invite us and to say, I'm warning you, don't go there, but rather come to me. Have an intimate relationship with me. Become a part of my family. He says, stop trying so hard. Stop striving. Stop denying the work of God in your lives. Come to me, you heavy laden and weary. Join my family and I'll transform you. Amen? We're going to take communion now. I'm going to invite the worship team up. Here's the thing, guys. Um, you know, here's these Pharisees that are guilty of all their traditions and their rituals, and here we're going to participate in a tradition. This is one of only a few that's actually ordained in Scripture. This is an ordinance. This is something that Jesus himself says, do this, do it often, and so that's why we do. And we don't believe that when we do this, that it somehow uh, supernaturally transforms us, but rather in the taking of communion, it focuses our attention back on Him and the work that He's accomplished for us. And maybe this is a time of repentance for you as you find yourself continually sort of going back to those things that convince you of your own righteousness instead of just looking to Him and saying, thank you, Lord, that you've covered me, that I'm righteous because of you, I'm justified because of you. You allow the Lord during this time to do a necessary work in your heart and we'll pray and we'll close things out. So, Father, we come to you now, Lord, and we thank you for your word. We praise you, Lord, for it. And we thank you, Lord, that we come to these passages of Scripture that are so insightful, Lord, as we continue to dig into them. And we see, Lord, so often not just the example of someone who's missing it in Scripture, Lord, but it reveals our own hearts and how so often we too, Lord, can just miss it. Lord, that we can miss your exceedingly abundant grace at times, Lord. We can convince ourselves of all the things that we need to do to earn your favor, earn the favor of others, Lord. We pile all this stuff upon ourselves, Lord, when in fact what you call us to do is just to come to you, Lord, and lay it all before you, empty ourselves before you and allow you to come in and to fill us and to transform us. And so, Lord, whether, it's, whether we need to do that for the first time here today or, Lord, we just need filled up again, a fresh filling, Lord, we come to you now. We just lay these things at your feet. Lord, as we take communion, may we do so in a worthy manner, Lord, in a way that pleases you. Having, Lord, dealt with sin in our lives, having confessed it before you, and getting right as we partake of a symbol of the most important thing that's ever happened. 
and all of time. And so, Father, do that work in our hearts here now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Here at CCNE, there are so many events happening throughout the week, so make sure you're subscribed to the weekly e-bulletin so you can be fully informed of all that we're doing. For more info, or if there are any prayer requests you'd like to share with us, be sure to visit us at ccnortheast.org.